Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 22 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, July the 1st. Today, I'll be talking to Justin Webb, co-founder and chairman of AgriWeb, a data-driven software platform committed to delivering the digital future of agriculture, transforming global cattle, sheep and dairy production, helping farmers with profitability, provenance and sustainability across the supply chain. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boimel about the outlook for house prices across Australia. But now let's talk to Justin Webb. Well, Justin, tell us about AgriWeb. How does it work? Great. Thanks. Um, Thank you very much for having me on. AgriWeb is a farm management software and supply chain enablement software. Now, what does all that mean? On farm, in my own experience growing up in the Western District, my academic training had me studying applied biomatics and and professionally I'd been working in finance. And I went back home and found that we were making, much like many farms right around the world, a lot of our production decisions based off of, you know, pencil and paper or what happened next door on, you know, on Nate's farm in, in, in the neighborhood. And ultimately, we, we looked at that and thought, well, hang on, we should be able to digitize these records and empower ourselves to make data-led decision-making. And you know, that's on farm, that sees huge increases in, in output. I mean, sort of 7 to 10% year on year from productivity, efficiency, genetics, operationals, protocol, all that stuff. But then on the bigger scale, we start looking beyond the Western District and right around the world, you know, farmers, ranchers in the UK, in the US, South Africa, Brazil. Argentina, all over the place are using this. And therefore, we're able to unlock at the, at the processor and then at the retailer, this data that can be evidence to the consumer to say, well, hang on, is my food healthy? Is it demonstrable animal welfare? And is it demonstrating environmental welfare? And I think these are the kind of key decisions that are starting to define a lot of the purchasing decisions made in supermarkets, as well as some of the threats that we've seen to the supply chain very realistically during empty shelves of COVID times. Okay, so uh, what's the size of your market? Uh, Well, look, globally, there's a commercial cattle herd of about 800 million head. So even at the scale we're at now, which is about 18 and a half million head, 
um, we've got a lot of headroom to grow. Fortunate enough to be a bit of market leader. We've got about 8,000 farms that are using the platform. We add roughly 250 new farming businesses join us every month. But to put that in context, there's, there's 500,000 branching operations in the United States. There's about a million of them in Brazil. There's sort of 60,000 um, here in Australia that are in livestock and um, about 40,000 in the UK. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity to really innovate frankly, what's been a, a, a pretty ignored, digitally ignored industry. Okay, so how, how much of your market is overseas and how much is in Australia? Well, on that relative basis, right, the, the United States sort of 10x the size of the Aussie market. That being said, it's, it's really, really exciting. It's best put in the startup space or when looking to export. There are very few industries that we can sit, we as Aussies can sit front and centre Right. Um, if you can make an agricultural business, an agricultural technology work here in Australia, you are recognized as being a world leader internationally because we've got some of the most diverse ecology, farming methodology, production. At the same time, we've got leading edge regulations that, that, that need to be met for food security. And frankly, we've got a great brand. Uh, you know, it's, it's not that well known that on our most commonly used banknote, the $50 bill sits uh, one of the original ag tech entrepreneurs, David Unipon, sits on the $50 bill and he invented the mechanical shears. And I think that's pretty cool that here we are <laughs> centuries after, after David was coming up with you know, writing, writing the tool or inventing the tool that rode, we rode on the sheep's back to wealth. And we're now, again, at this place where we can innovate and then export to world markets some of the, the world-leading ag tech tools. This is quite extraordinary. I mean, but what, what fascinates me is you came from finance. So, um, for my sins. For your <laughs> sins. So what are the key learnings you've taken from finance into ag tech? Well, look, I think my background in finance was probably more in mathematics. You know, I, I ended up Studying it at Harvard, I studied economics, but also machine learning and artificial intelligence, and then used those skills to understand noisy, noisy data sets, create hedge funds or fintech to ultimately see through the noise in investing. And then similarly, try to see through the noise in governance, um, specifically in, in trying to build out some really interesting and, and original platforms across the South Pacific that would install governance into sovereign wealth funds and, and superannuation funds up there. So what does all that come together? Well, it's really being able to apply tools that aren't that regularly used to you know, understand from a data perspective, the improvements that could be made, the opportunities that exist. And maybe that's part of the, the, the ability to innovate the industry. I think there's two sides to, to coming into an industry. One is empathy, really, really understanding the user, particularly the farmer. And, and again, I, I sort of make these points saying, I don't think farmers are not digitally savvy or aware. They just don't want bad tech. And so you've got to build technology that understands and is empathetic to the way they work in the fields with you know when it's cold and dark and they've been out there. So make sure it understands their, their work, works with them and immediately adds value. Then at the same time, have an understanding of what are the best tools out in the space to bring to this industry. And maybe that's a bit of an advantage of being an outsider arriving in this business or coming home to this business, I should say. My old man's side of the family would be pretty sad if I said I was arriving because we've been here since the 1850s of, of farming. 
But, you know, it's what's been so fantastic is the uptake. 18 million head across 150 million acres really shows that in four or five years, this is an industry that is desperate to innovate and to be present solutions for feeding 10 billion people by 2050. And so that's a big, big problem. And we've got to do it more sustainably, more efficiently, more productively. Oh, well, this is interesting because back in my university days, I actually worked on a farm out at Foster. And, oh, right. uh, and, and so my experience of it was working on hay baling. And that was 24-hour shifts. And you were just absolutely buggered at the end of it. And that was the life of the farmer. So I'm just wondering, I mean, were you aware of that when you sort of brought the, your technology to the farmers? Because that's where they're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, so let me start, start with where we started with the business, right? Once that spark of hang on, there's an opportunity came, my co-founder who had grown up nowhere near a farm, he grew up in, in Silicon Valley and Stanford, um, and he'd been building big sort of solutions uh, for DARPA in the United States around renewable energy and batteries and et cetera. And so what he did, he came and he literally lived on farm for about eight, nine months just to understand the commonalities of what was going on. There's a great phrase that says, look, do, ask, right? So watch what's happening, then do it yourself before you ask. Because you know, Henry Ford said, if I'd asked everyone what, what I should have built, they would have said a faster horse. So we needed to understand the, you know, what was that dynamic? What was their environment? And actually a great anecdote of, of reality in the product is we would walk into shearing sheds and you would see right across the country and right across internationally, you see a farm map and you'd see magnets on those farm maps. And that would discern what, where a certain mob was, right? Your wieners were in there and, and, and your calves were, were uh, in, in another paddock down by the river. And that's how you'd move around and keep track of it. So that's what we built. Farmers don't think about their farm in terms of spreadsheets and drop-down menus. So instead, we built a farm map, and you're able to drag and drop your animals to keep track of where they are. And just from that original hook, which almost seems so basic with the evolution where we've taken the product, that's where we got those early adopters to, to understand, oh, wait, you're not asking me to change everything about the way that I operate. You are building technology that has empathy for it, understands the world that I live in, but is also trying to make it easier for me to be empowered with my own records to make decisions. And the farmers were quite okay with adopting the technology? Yeah, look, there's so often I get pushed back on this, but, oh, it must be hard out there trying to sell to, you know, average age of farmers in Australia is about 56. And, and, and isn't it tricky because they're not really digital people? And, and again, I, I actually vehemently disagree. In particular, you know, we in, in urban areas, you know, we've got an app and if it doesn't work immediately, exactly as we expect it to, we shut it down and we don't open it again. And I think the, the attitude of a farmer, if the tractor doesn't work, no one's coming out for days to fix it. So you've got to learn how to do that. You've got to be a mechanic, an accountant, a marketer, a salesperson, a vet. You've got to do so many different hats. And so actually we've found that as these amazing customers have come on board, they are so receptive to giving us product feedback, to being engaged with our roadmap. And actually, if we just shut our mouth and open our ears, we've got this, this fantastic runway of feedback and experience that really can drive our business both here and internationally. So uh, what role can AgTech play sustainably feeding the world? Well, look, I think that Thomas Malthus, who was the, the sort of author, uh, original author of what, what came to be known as the Malthusian trap, right, which is where 
population growth outstrips the production of food. And, and I don't think any of the listeners would struggle to, to, to recognize that's not a good thing. And at the moment, like we have been able to push out the supply curve through innovations in fertilizer, through innovations in farming methodologies, through innovations in, in genetics of both animal and plant production. But that's not without the negative externalities, right? We've seen some of the problems in climate change, seen some of the problems in, in factory farming. And so now, again, we still are facing this rising, inexorable rise of population. And 10 billion people by 2050 are concurrent with demanding higher levels of natural protein in their diet, right? In China, in Indonesia, uh, as those middle incomes are rising, they're spending more of their discretionary income on natural protein. And so therefore, we have to not only produce more food, but also food that demands a higher intensity of, of input. So this is a productivity problem, and productivity problems are best solved by technology. So I think this is a crux of we need to be able to produce more food and do so with less land and do so with a less or vastly less environmental footprint than is done so at the, at the minute. Now, there's some amazing ancillary and additive innovations that we're seeing, impossible meat or lab-grown synthetic uh, protein production. And I think those are both necessary and brilliant, but they're not even close to or even with a prospect of the scale of being able to satisfy the demand. So all of us together need to work on technologies that will provide enough food for the population that we're facing. Well, Justin, that's all fascinating and uh, quite challenging. And uh, we'll be watching AgriWeb quite closely. Thank you very much for your time. Leon, couldn't be happy to be with you. And thanks very much for the support. And now let's talk to economist Jonathan Boymel. Well, Jonathan, there's all sorts of predictions that uh, property prices are going to crash now with rising interest rates. What's your view about that? Yeah, look, absolutely. The Reserve Bank of Australia... Governor Philip Lowe is now expecting inflation to hit 7% by the end of 2022, right? And that's a level we haven't seen since the middle of 1990. In in an interview, he considered that cash rate could rise to 2.5% next year for the first time since February um, 2015. And if you take a look at at some of the, the forecasts, Commonwealth Bank, for example, Got a prediction by the Commonwealth Bank of 18% falls in both Sydney and Melbourne next year. That's on the basis of, of uh, their expectation of a cash rate of, of 2.1%. If the cash rate goes up to 2.5%, uh, then we're likely to see more significant declines. So the Commonwealth Bank's forecast of, of 2.1%, um, that would see a borrower with a $600,000 mortgage pay 582 more every month on their mortgage. But if the cash rate hits 2.5%, borrowers would pay 725 more on a $600,000 mortgage every, every month. And to be honest, these are quite, you know, quite conservative estimates. If you take a look at, at uh, what the market is forecasting, right? And we know financial markets are now tipping a cash rate of about 4%, 4.2% by May next year, we're likely to see you know, even, even more significant falls in, falls in house prices. So according to the Financial Stability Review, the RBA says if you have a 200 uh, basis point increase in interest rates, 
that means that real housing prices will fall by about 15%. In nominal terms, it means it'd be about be about 20%. So looking at what the markets are forecasting, right? If we've got a forecast for 4.2% for the cash rate, we're going to see on, on that basis, on, on, on that modelling, we'd see 30% fall in, in real terms in, in, in national house prices and a you know, 35 plus fall in, in nominal values. And that's under, the, uh, that's under the RBA's modelling. Indeed, but the, one of the problems too is that, as Governor Lowe has said, there's so many uncertainties with this because we're dealing not only with the pandemic, but we're dealing with a war in the Ukraine. And uh, there are so many uncertainties here. And also you've got the Fed this week raising rates with 75 basis points. And that's going to put a whole lot of pressure on the RBA to act just as aggressively. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, you know, there are several factors, several forces coming together, right, and, and driving changes in interest rates and you know, driving changes in, in house prices. One real concern, of course, is consumer confidence. So if you take a look at the ANZ, um, Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index, we've got really low numbers it's actually sort of pandemic level numbers right equivalent to what we saw in in uh, towards the start of the pandemic in april 2020 and if you you know if you want to see numbers like that outside of the pandemic you really have to go back to the the 1990s recession and we know this is going to have a have an impact on household consumption we know household consumption is the largest driver of economic activity so where consumption goes the rest of the economy the economy goes, and of course, you know, looking looking at those other factors, we've got the uh, the energy price shock that we're going to see. So that's going to have a, a real a real impact, both for residential households, right, as well as as well as as businesses. And then, of course, we've got the uh, the increase in Fair Work Commission um, granted Australia's lowest paid workers forty percent a week uh, pay rise. And that can potentially also add to, to inflationary pressure um, and it may require the RBA to go harder and to go faster in terms of increasing interest rates. Well, there's a whole issue here too, is that Australia has one of the highest level of indebtedness of households. So where does that leave? Where does that leave us? Can we expect to see a whole lot of mortgage defaults as a result? Well, I think, you know, something that's, that's particularly interesting is, you know, what reinforces that is that most of our, our mortgages are variable, right? And that's quite unique in the world. So when you have a, um, a cash rate change, um, that passes on, obviously, to, to variable interest rates. And that then has a real impact on households' ability to make the, to make the required repayments. So the, the fact that we have um, a high proportion of mortgages being, being variable interest rate um, mortgages makes that situation all the all the worse and of course we've got the situation of you know of rising of rising inflation and when you've got rising inflation with wages barely growing you're going to have a really you know an an, an additional burden on consumers to make repayments the issue too is that i mean i, I would have to guess i'm not saying not suggesting this would happen in australia but i think one of the one of the world's at least one of the major Western economies is going to go into recession. I would tip that. I mean, uh, the OECD, for example, is tipping that Britain is going to have 0% growth. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we know that Australia is a, is a small open economy. Um, so what happens to the rest of the world certainly, certainly impacts us. And if household consumption in Australia, you know, weakens dramatically, we lack sort of that countervailing force on total spending on Australian goods and services. Um, so yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a real challenge. You would say over the next year we can see big drops in house prices. You'd agree with that? Oh, absolutely. You know, the question is the question is to what extent. But you would expect that house prices will sort of give up give up the gains that we've seen over the last maybe over the last two years. Um, there'll be people who have purchased just before who will still have seen a, an increase in their you know in their real wealth. But yeah, those who those who have purchased over the last couple of years, we would expect the gains that that they may have have made will be will be wiped out. Which uh, could actually be a good time for younger people looking Correct. to buy into the market. That Correct. Would be a good time for them, wouldn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, new new borrowers, right, can can borrow less. Right when you've got higher when you've got higher interest rates and people's cash flow surpluses are being are being constrained, but on the flip side, you know, with lower with lower house prices, you know, there there is the the possibility for for new new entrants to to enter the market. So that that could actually be quite positive in a sense for the housing market. It could be positive for those who who are wanting to enter, but just you know, keeping in mind higher interest rates still mean new borrowers can can uh, borrow less people's cash flow surfaces surfaces are being are being constrained um, because of inflation and the cost of living um, so it's not all great news for for new home borrowers but yeah on balance on balance there may be a silver lining for new home purchases what's interesting here is that there's a whole generation that's not seen anything like this not since the 90s correct and so, you know, that's, uh, what, 30 years ago? That's right. That's right. So it'll be interesting to see how people, how people react. We know, you know, the impact of, of crashing consumer confidence in the, in the early 1990s recession. It'll be interesting to see how people, how people react. Um, there are some, you know, some surpluses that people have built up. Um, during the during the pandemic, so they may have a bit of a may have a bit of a buffer, um, but certainly we're in, we're in unknown territory. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll be watching it very very closely. And Jonathan, thank you mm-hmm. very much for your time. Thank you, Leo. So, what's happening in the news? Well, the bad news on inflation just just keeps coming at more than nine percent year on year across the rich world. It has not been this high since the nineteen eighties, and there's never been so many inflation surprises where the data have come in higher than economists forecast. Central banks are raising interest rates and ending bond buying schemes, crushing equities. Consumer confidence in many places is now even lower than it was in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Real-time economic indicators of everything from housing activity to manufacturing output suggest that economic growth is slowing sharply. Inflation worry wards can point to three other indicators suggesting that the rich world is unlikely to return to the pre-pandemic norm of low, stable price growth anytime soon. Rising wage growth and the increases in in the inflation expectations of both consumers and companies. And leading economies are close to tipping into a high-inflation world where rapid price rises are normal, dominate daily life and are difficult to quell, the Bank for International Settlements warned on Sunday. 
In its annual report, the BIS, the influential body that operates banking services for the world's central banks, said these transitions to high inflation environments happened rarely, but were very hard to reverse. Diagnosing that many economies had already embarked on the process, the BIS recommended that central banks should not be shy of inflicting short-term pain and even recessions to prevent any move to a persistently high inflation world. The BIS said the key for central banks is to act quickly and decisively before inflation becomes entrenched. Central banks around the world have started to raise rates quickly in response to soaring inflation, with the US Federal Reserve leading the pack, but the action taken so far does not satisfy the BIS. In its report, the bank said that there was a deep, inherently stagflationary shock hitting the world from higher commodity prices, supply chain bottlenecks and shortages stemming from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This had increased the prices of the goods and services that households notice the most, reinforcing the salience of price increases. We may be reaching a tipping point beyond which an inflationary psychology spreads and becomes entrenched. This would mean a major paradigm shift, the report stated. Such a shift would mean leaving behind a world where prices have been generally stable, with some things getting cheaper and others more expensive. In this benign world, central banks have been able to ignore temporary surges in oil or natural gas prices because economy-wide inflation is less notable and also less relevant. And Russia defaulted on its foreign currency sovereign debt for the first time in a century, the culmination of ever tougher Western sanctions that shut down payment routes to overseas creditors. For months, the country found pass around the penalties imposed after the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine. But at the end of the day on Sunday, the grace period on about $100 million of snared interest payments due May 27 expired, a deadline considered an event of default if missed. It's a green marker in the company's rapid transformation into an economic, financial and political outcast. The nation's euro bonds have traded at distressed levels since the start of March, the central bank's foreign reserves remain frozen, and the biggest banks are severed from the global financial system. But given the damage already done to the economy and markets, the default is also mostly symbolic for now and matters little to Russians dealing with double-digit inflation and the worst economic contraction in years. Russia has pushed back against the default designation, saying it has the funds to cover any bills and has been forced into non-payment. As it tried to twist its way out, it announced last week that it would switch to servicing its $40 billion of outstanding sovereign debt in rubles, criticising a force majeure situation it said was artificially manufactured by the West. And the Albanese government is confident of a reasonably swift conclusion to the free trade agreement being negotiated with Europe after it patched up relations with France over the cancelled submarines contract. After the French placed a block on negotiations between the European and Australian in retaliation to what it claimed to be treachery by the Morrison government, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said it was not just keeping France on board as a security partner that mattered. Mr Albanese, who is in Madrid for the NATO summit, will fly to Paris later in the week at the invitation of French President Emmanuel Macron. Officials said with the change of government and the new spirit of détente between France and Australia, there were clear signs from the EU about proceeding with the FTA negotiations. And Treasurer Jim Chalmers says easing the rules around pension eligibility to make it easier for older Australians to work more without losing benefits to help ease chronic labour and skill shortages will be discussed at this year's National Employment Summit before October's budget. This will see more than 400,000 people over the age of 65 returning to the nation's workforce without losing benefits. The proposal from business groups late last year was not taken up by the former government. The Australian Chamber of Commerce, Australian Industry Group and the Council of the Ageing on Sunday have thrown their weight behind the idea, saying that alongside expanding childcare, it's an obvious policy lever to expand the workforce. And power generators are devising a plan to raise price caps in the national electricity system so that they can make a profit while providing power to avoid a repeat of the market suspension and ease an ongoing energy crisis. 
When regulators imposed an administered price cap of $300 per megawatt hour for the first time a fortnight ago in a bid to calm a volatile market after a period of unusually high wholesale prices, it resulted in generators withholding more than 10% of supply because companies could not profit on high-cost generation and feared running out of fuel. That supply standoff led to the Australian energy market operator suspending the market. As a result, generators are now privately discussing pushing for a doubling of the cap price cap to $600 megawatts per hour to enable sufficient supply. Gas-fired generators recently needed a 500 megawatt per hour to turn a profit given soaring spot prices for the fossil fuel. An approach could be made to ask the AMO to itself to request a quick change to the rule. The issue may be raised with the state and federal energy ministers ahead of their next meeting on July the 20th. An analysis by the federal government's Workplace Gender Equality Agency shows a gender pay gap of about $40,000 a year for people aged 45 to 65, while women who reach senior executive roles are taking home nearly $100,000 less per year on average than their male counterparts. The new data shows women are still earning consistently less than men in every age bracket. The agency's new data report called Wages and Ages, mapping the gender pay gap by age, shows the pay gap widens substantially when women turn 35. It sees women earning $7.78 for every $10 earned by their male counterparts. The disparity worsens over the next 20 years, with a slight improvement once women turn 65, but never reaching parity. If these trends continue, millennial women in the workforce will earn just 70% of men's earnings by the time they reach the age of 45. And Treasurer Jim Chalmers has signalled his interest in shaking up the business-dominated board of the Reserve Bank of Australia to ensure its diversity as representative industries, workers, geography and gender. This follows Australian Council of Trade Union Secretary Sally McManus and former RBA Governor Bernie Fraser calling for worker representation on the committee that sets interest rates. This also comes after RBA Governor Philip Lowe sought to cap wage growth at 3.5% and warned against bigger across-the-board pay increases that could fuel the 1970s-style wage price spiral. Chalmers said the planned independent review of the RBA would consider the composition and size of the nine-member board to make sure it was representative of the economy, geography and gender. The Treasurer will have the opportunity to appoint two board members when the terms of Fortescue Medals Group Deputy Chairman Mark Barnaber and businesswoman Wendy Craig expire in August this year and May next year, respectively. He said he was open-minded about restoring worker representation to the RBA board. However, he said he did not believe in standing positions and would consider appointments on a case-by-case basis. And BHP will spend US $4 billion by the end of the decade to reduce its carbon emissions and give its shareholders an annual scorecard on its performance on key social and environmental issues, as the company bets that reforming the mining sector's image will help it keep delivering dividends to shareholders. According to a new set of environmental and social achievement guidelines introduced by the mining giant, by next financial year, any mining project BHP considers for development will need to demonstrate it will help the company meet its decarbonisation goals to win further funding, the company said on Tuesday. By 2024, the mining giant will have built at least one pilot in the steel plant that helps the industry carbon neutral. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the sharp spike in global energy prices that followed has meant the growing investor and community pressure on major miners such as BHP to abandon fossil fuels and decarbonise their operations has largely taken a back seat to more immediate community concerns around energy pricing and security. But in an investor presentation on Tuesday, BHP Chief Legal and Governance Officer Carolyn Cox told analysts and investors the company's social value framework would become an increasingly important part of BHP's decision-making process, with the company committing to look at the broader impact of its decisions and not just the immediate financial returns. 
and the Queensland financial conglomerate Suncor is making a fresh push to spin or sell its banking unit and focus on its insurance arm to try to boost returns for shareholders. A sale of Suncor Bank has long been the subject of speculation, with Macquarie Bank, AMP, Bank of Queensland and Bendigo and Adelaide Bank all mooted as merger partners. Of the major banks, ANZ might be in the running. And the boss of IGA operator, Metcash, says Australians' preference for shopping locally has propelled the retailer into a strong position to handle tough economic challenges on the horizon. Our sales are showing that shoppers are sticking with independent stores and that trend is now becoming a habit, Chief Executive Doug Jones told analysts after revealing the company's 2.7% lift in annual profits on Monday. As well as supplying the IGA supermarkets and other independent players such as Foodworks, Metcash also operates the independent hardware group which owns the Mitre 10 and Home Timber and Hardware brands and also has an 85% stake in the total tools chain. The company's food retailers saw an earnings jump of 4.1%, while liquor was up 9.8%, and hardware sales were 40.7% higher as the company's IHG and Total Tools businesses benefited from the residential construction boom. And Australia's greenhouse gas emissions increased in 2021 as the removal of COVID-19 restrictions triggered a rebound in pollution levels from the transport, manufacturing and gas sectors, which offset falls from the electricity generation. National emissions in 2021 rose by 0.8% or 4.1 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. This was equivalent to 488 million tonnes, while an increase of 2% has been forecast for the year to March 2022, the federal government said. The Albanese administration blamed the rise on the coalition's failure to deliver coherent climate policy. Nonetheless, the figures show the scale of the challenge for Labor to deliver on its pledge for a 43% cut on 2005 emission levels by 2030. Australia's greenhouse gas emissions are currently 21.4% below 2005 levels, the benchmark year used for the Paris Climate Change Agreement, while both Labor and the Coalition have a target of net zero emissions by 2050. And the total value of the private hospital real estate sector is expected to hit $41 billion by 2041, a rise of 63% in less than 20 years on the back of investment in new facilities to cater for the medical needs of an ageing population and a rise in the take-up of private health insurance by younger Australians, according to analysis by JLL. According to JLL's 2021 Australian Healthcare Real Estate Report, there are more than 30,000 beds across 155 general overnight private hospitals, 35 rehabilitation clinics and 45 specialist mental health facilities in Australia. An additional 2,200 additional private hospital beds are due to be developed over the next eight years to meet rising demands, the JLL report says. However, only 280 beds are currently under construction with many projects in the planning stage and awaiting a confirmed operator to proceed. This constrained supply, along with favourable investment metrics such as long leases of 20 to 30 years to single operators, has turned the once niche asset class into a mainstream investment for many institutional portfolios. And the size of Australian households has declined over the past five years, a shift that may have accelerated during the pandemic, increasing demand for housing and sending rents sky high, even as overseas migration fell sharply. Census data released on Tuesday also reveals that formation of single-person households has significantly outpaced the creation of one-bedroom homes homes, a disconnect which shows housing construction is out of step with needs, according to some analysts. In rounded numbers, the average number of people comprising each household has fallen from 2.6 to 2.5 people, although the shift appears marginal, it could equate to nearly 200,000 homes. And ride-sharing giant Uber and the Transport Workers Union have struck a landmark agreement on proposed employment standards and benefits ahead of expected new gig economy regulation from the Albanese government. The union and Uber have also agreed to jointly support the creation of a new independent government-funded regulatory body to create industry-wide standard for rideshare and food delivery gig workers following months of negotiation.
Under the agreed standards, the body will be responsible for creating minimum and transparent enforceable earnings, benefits and conditions for people who work on the rideshare platform. The body will also act as a means for resolving disputes over platform employment issues, such as when a worker's account is deactivated. The standards also outline that the rights of workers to join and be represented by a union will be respected. And women are still being forced to spend $620 to obtain a surgical abortion in some states, despite the fact that it is available under Medicare in Australia. In New South Wales, one of the largest providers, Marie Stopes, offers an abortion in the first trimester starting at $620 for those with Medicare. For those who do not have a card, such as asylum seekers on temporary protection visas, they could face upfront costs of more than $800. Independents Monique Ryan, Zali Stegel and other crossbench MPs are considering asking the Parliamentary Library to research abortion costs, availability and legislative framework in each it comes as protests are organised this week across Australia against the US Supreme Court overturning the right to abortions. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Garrett Flower, CEO and founder of Park Office IO, which uses a COVID-19 focused solution allowing employers to track which staff members require parking at the office on a given day. An algorithm then allocates available parking to those who are most vulnerable or whose need is greatest. By leveraging the park office solutions, companies will be able to increase parking availability by up to 40%. Park Office is a leading parking management software solution for smart offices that optimises employee parking by assigning and releasing parking spaces as required, reducing administrative costs and adding value to real estate. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about how the market is performing. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.